0: I'm Abby Kenny, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner in Kansas City, and joined with me today is Chuck Marone, regular co-host and founder of the Strong Towns organization. We also have joining us a very special guest, someone new to the show, my friend Shamari Benton. Shamari is the co-founder of his legal practice here in kansas city specializing in land use and real estate he is also an avid urbanist historic preservation advocate and small-scale developer shamari so glad to have you joining us today welcome
1: i'm very very thankful to be here with with you abby and, and chuck
0: yeah, I know you guys had a chance to meet a couple of months ago when Chuck was in Kansas City, but I'm glad that uh, you guys both have the chance to be reacquainted with one another.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for making this happen, Abby. It's it's fun for you and I to chat, but it's always better to have people who are actually doing this work out there, too, to join us. So, Shamara, I'm I am glad you're here.
1: Very excited. Been a fan for a long time.
0: <laughs> so... I wanted Shamari to come on the show because of his very unique background and the article that we are covering today, which kind of made waves in the historic preservation space. Uh, So the article that we are going to cover today was published in The Atlantic by Nolan Gray, and it is entitled Stop Fetishizing Old Homes. So in this article, the author certainly takes a very spicy approach to talking about historic preservation and how it has ultimately harmed the capacity for many cities across the U.S. to develop a sufficient number of housing units in a Housing crisis. He says that the fetishization of old homes has, in a sense, encouraged our society to weaponize preservation in a self righteous pursuit that clouds more important needs of building a lot more housing. According to the author, we need to start getting serious about new construction as opposed to preserving the old. One of the central arguments here is that many old homes, like a Boston triple decker or a kit built San Jose bungalow, or a Chicago Greystone, are akin to junker cars being forced back into service after their intended life. They are the cheap housing of past generations and have not been well-maintained and are likely unsafe due to stuff like lead paint and fire safety issues. He also mentions that old buildings were built prior to the Americans with Disabilities Act, and so many units are really inaccessible to disabled folks. So, I thought this would be a great article to cover because there's most certainly this core tension between hardcore historic preservationists and Yimby advocates or people who are very much pro build, pro housing. But, Shamari, like myself, I feel like you kind of sit in both camps. As as somebody who appreciates what uh, has been built and appreciates preservation of the old, but also, you know, feels that we do need to progress in building more housing in our cities. What was kind of your first thoughts about this take in this article?
1: I'll start with the comments from the article, and and I think there needs to be some nuance plugged into this conversation. Uh, if I'm going to be frank, I I would agree with some of the with some of the comments. I mean. I'm gonna throw myself in this category. The group of preservationists, group of urbanists, we we can be pretentious and we can be in, in an echo chamber. I would not deny that. The ADA comment, I think, is is one that deserves some attention and discussion. Those are fair points. All that being said, I, I don't think these are mutually exclusive things. There are legitimate points to preservation that are not just subjective. And outside of those objective points of preservation, we can reuse historic homes, historic buildings, getting around some of the issues that the author has discussed, and essentially, for better or for worse, make both parties equally happy and unhappy. I don't don't think preservation plus new build or responding to some of the concerns that the author brings up are mutually exclusive things. We can for the most part, do both.
0: Yeah. It kind of reminds me of that meme, like, why not both? (laughs) As I was reading this article, I kept picturing that in my head, and I actually ended up sending that meme (laughs) to Chuck when discussing this article offline. I think that's a really good point, that these two things really aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, and I think it comes down to how preservation tools are ultimately being used and what the what the real intent of them is. Chuck, I want to get your thoughts because I feel like there is this layer of nuance to put on this. Is this kind of the thoughts that you were having as you were reading this article, this issue of these things not being mutually exclusive?
2: Yeah, so I adore Nolan. Like I really like him. He's a he's a great thinker and I mm-hmm. consider him a friend. He's a he's a great guy. I do feel like there are some blind spots in this like strain of thinking and I I don't want to speak too broadly about like libertarian thinking cuz I know Nolan wouldn't consider himself I don't think like a strict libertarian but but there's this idea that the problem we're facing is housing prices are not affordable and in just a very like narrow analysis of supply and demand a like market fundamental, fundamentalist kind of approach is, well, if the price is too high, increase supply and then cost will go down. And so anything that is an obstacle to increasing supply, such as antiquated fetishing of old buildings and our reluctance to tear them down and rebuild them, becomes like an obstacle to seeing the progress made that we want. And I, I think that that is simultaneously a misdiagnosis of the the core problem and a misapplication of the solution. You know you I think you're turning and like shooting the innocent bystander as opposed to actually like dealing with, you know, the underlying problem. So, if if we look at historic preservation and we look at even a tendency to favor stagnation of old buildings, I think that that is a problem in two ways. You know, I'm agreeing with Nolan, but I I think that the cause of that problem comes from two different things. The the first one, I think, is the kind of natural desire by true historic preservationists to fight back against the urban renewal kind of mindset of just going in and destroying neighborhoods in order to recreate them in a new image. And I am aligned with that, that resistance And but I'm also in agreeing with Nolan that the answer to that is not to preserve these neighborhoods under glass, right? To me, and and this is what Shamar I think is getting at a, a little bit too is the idea is that these neighborhoods need to flex and grow and breathe and change over time. Locking them in amber is not like the right response. And so I think Nolan is touching on something true here that To the extent that the response has been to lock these places, you know, freeze them down and and not allow them to change, he's right. Like that is damaging. I think that the other idea that these neighborhoods are stagnating because we have a fetish with old buildings. I think that a lot of these neighborhoods stagnate because the capital structure, the way we go about building homes, requires us to make like large leaps and large changes. In in other words, a lot of the development that that market fundamental people kind of advocate for winds up to be such dramatic change that it crowds out of the marketplace all the people that would make a living rehabbing old homes and turning single family homes into duplexes and fixing up all these things and and kind of the decades of stagnation that Nolan points to as being a problem in a lot of these places is a direct result of the fact that we have made by default, the only change you can make, these massive market shifting, Wall Street responsive kind of investments. And, and I think that actually gets to more of the problem is that the solution that's being advocated for here, which is let's empower the the, the people who are going to go in and wipe things out and, and remake them, is actually the answer that has created a lot of the tension and the problems that we're struggling with.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. And, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about with what Shamari is working on, as somebody who's working on a small scale development project and a project that is basically reviving a historic building, I think it, that really kind of touches on how we invest in real estate. And I'm curious, Shamari, what your thoughts are. I know you're not building housing, but. Why was it not the approach for you to just simply tear down the building and build something new? Because new is always better. <laughs> um, you know, what what draws you to taking the approach of of reinvesting in something that is old?
1: Sure. My first point would actually be a response to how the article um uh, started and the bullet point that the author pointed out, which was the price point of historic homes is astronomical and i'm going to say it in in, in shorter terms than, than than i think the article did but i think the author's point was was why he couldn't understand why the reference historic homes were at the price point they were selling at and that might be true in the market that he was referencing in his article But as you know, Abby and and Chuck, I don't I I don't know if this is the same in in Brainerd, but uh, the experience here in, in, in Kansas City, Missouri, in some ways is the is the opposite. Right. Whether you're talking about commercial, whether you're talking about multifamily, I think somewhat to a lesser extent, single family homes. But oftentimes the historic bills, the historic multifamilies here in Kansas City, we have colonnades, you know. Four, six, eight-unit uh, uh, multifamily plexes. The work that we're doing in the Vine District, old historic limestone buildings, uh, they often present spaces that are less expensive than newer construction. There are several reasons for that. Again, you know, the demand in particular markets may not be the same as the demand in LA or San Jose or New York, et cetera, and so. If we were to write that article and give an examples, I think a lot of our personal experiences would be somewhat opposite of what was referenced in the article. So I think first and foremost, when you talk about a a cost perspective and the ability to put into the market commercial spaces, multifamily spaces that are reasonably reasonably priced, that's one of the larger reasons to to have historic preservation. I think... For most of the united states that is the experience not the opposite
0: yeah exactly that's that's definitely the lens that i had as i was reading this knowing the context of the author being on the coast in a very different market than in kansas city you know in kansas city a lot of our older buildings is the quote-unquote affordable or more modestly priced housing of today and the reality is that you know for the most part Building a new apartment building uh, in Kansas City, construction-wise, is you know going to be close to the same cost in other parts of the country. I.e., meaning that it's very expensive compared to a lot of our existing housing stock, and that's going to be the case in a lot of kind of mid-sized cities, smaller cities, cities that don't really have the market of the superstar cities. And I think that, you know, I hang out around a lot of architects, obviously. So I think that there is this important point about, you know, the durability of materials for older buildings, um, that there was kind of this lens in the article of new is good and old is bad and, you know old buildings are crappy buildings, but I felt like that argument is incomplete because it doesn't really talk about construction quality. And the reality is that a lot of uh, buildings that are built today are using very different materials than what was used in the past. I mean, even looking at the quality of wood for the internal structure of a building, we use a lot of uh, young wood, fast growth wood, as compared to older buildings using Old growth wood, and and that that actually has a huge impact on how long buildings are going to be standing. In addition to that, a lot of uh, building materials are very paper like, plywood, wafer board, drywall, things that don't really hold up well. And and if you have the issue um, in climates like Kansas City, where things expand and contract, that creates some risk in terms of water getting in buildings and you know uh, how long these different materials are are going to hold up and that might be a little bit different in LA because it's a very temperate climate there is a point that old homes have really good bones and new homes have kind of bones made of paper <laughs> in a sense so durability i think is an incredibly important piece that i felt was kind of missing from the the arguments in this article Although there is a point to to trying to find ways to retrofit the existing building stock we had. Um, And there's also this question of what are we trying to preserve? Because we have lots of parking lots, right, (laughs) all over the place. And I actually think a more balanced approach would be to take care and, and maintain these more modest, older building types that we have in the city and start to reuse these parking lots and this unused land for new buildings, that to me is a more balanced approach that actually could create a variety of housing types and price points, you know even qualities that that would be it just make for better neighborhoods because it enables people needing different price points to live in a single place.
2: I'd like to add some historical context to something in this article. And I've got a question then for Shamari after I do that, because I, I feel like what you're talking about, Abby, is exactly right. And I, I would say, I think one of the things that's lacking in our market today is a starter home and a starter home of a, let me just say this without trying to be offensive, but of replacement level quality. Let me tie that into something that that Nolan says in the article. At the end, he talks about Japan. And he says, you know, for comparison's sake, look at Japan. The, the, you know, the average home there is demolished after 30 years. 87% are new homes. I think it's important to recognize a couple of things. First, Japanese cities were completely wiped out less than a century ago. Like when you look at Kansas City and you say there's all this housing stock that's pre-World War II that consists, you know, a sizable portion of the city is that. There's zero of that in Japan. Every city was firebombed. A lot of the starter homes there were made of almost paper like material that just went up in flames. None of that is left. Like it's not around anymore. So it's not like an apples to apples comparison where, you know, there's this huge like historic housing stock in Japan that they've decided now to tear down and renovate because somehow it makes market sense to do. That being said, what has gone on in Japan and what used to happen in the US but does not happen anymore is this idea of a starter home. The idea that you would build something modest, something that over time would either be of startup materials where it would be very affordable and cheap to get into, but the idea was when you build it to a certain step. You would tear some of those things down because they were throwaway and start over or build something more substantial when the neighborhood got to a point, or you would build modestly with the idea of adding on, expanding the house, building more stories, adding more units. That that whole concept is gone. And it's been replaced with either a securitizable product, a single family home that can be sold on the secondary market, get a 30-year mortgage, all that or a large project that's gonna be funded through this top-down capital funnel. Here's the question I would like to ask, and I I think, Shamari, if if you don't mind weighing in on this, my impression is that it is easier to build a $10 million project than a $100,000 project. It's easier to uh, find the developer and the people who could come in and do a $10 million project and can come in and do a series of, you know, $50,000 to $100,000 retrofits. And to me, that that seems a little broken. Is that your impression as well? And how would you react to, to that?
1: Yeah, generally, I think that's correct. And I, I think about two bullet points for that question. One is, and to Abby's earlier point, it's about craftsmanship and the ability to uh, reuse a historic site. And oftentimes you have to bring in a professional that has a particular skill set in regards to historic preservation. And then now that can that can be pretty that can be pretty pricey. That could be pretty expensive. The second point is that the market in general, whether you're talking about lenders, whether you're talking about public servants, whether you're talking about folks in positions of decision making when it comes to city hall etc the the new construction approach is what's familiar right you can go to a lender with a pro forma and 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 all of the language that is spoken of within the development space and most folks understand that language right it's somewhat a different language on preservation and and unfortunately my experience is that we're losing some of that knowledge. And that's why I think it's even more important for preservation. So we're able to continue that knowledge for generations. And ultimately, as discussed, despite some of those more difficult hurdles, preservation versus new construction, you can still in most markets present a space, present a residential unit sometimes a home below the cost of new construction when, and I'm not knocking, I'm not knocking uh, these, these projects, but when you have, you know, a hundred plus multifamily apartment building with the pool and, 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 and with the gym and the yoga studio and the podcast room, right? That's, that's expensive stuff, but frankly, it's easy to make. It's easy to make because, uh, generally speaking, it's a cut and paste model. Working with historic buildings, you're working with quirks. You're working with uh, things that, again, you know the market has either forgotten how to do or there's only a few people who know how to do it, and it's a pretty penny to hire them in order to get those things done. That has been my experience, and I, I imagine that, in most cities and towns, that would be the experience of other developers, particularly incremental developers, folks who uh, do not have the relationships with 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 large lenders to to piggyback off of a large amount of debt. And those are some of the hurdles that you'll have to get around if if, if that's the approach you want to take. But I think ultimately we're all better for it.
2: Just real briefly, I feel like this is one of the reasons why the incremental development people are so important, you know, because what, what this approach does is it, it really crowds out, uh, like we see in a lot of the marketplace, it crowds out the people who would do this work. You know, I mean, we can look in other realms and we can see the, the guy who used to own his own shoe store now sells shoes at Kohl's. And the person who used to have their own bakery now, you know, works somewhere else uh, on assembly line. And, and, and the person who used to do these like detailed, nuanced things. I think of like music. This is an example that Nassim Taleb talks about sometimes. We used to hire musicians all the time to do things. And, and now musician is a part time side gig because there's no room in the marketplace for it. We've centralized that. I think when it comes to housing and construction, we've crowded out a lot of the the people who would normally do this kind of work. And we've made it very risky, very difficult for them to do it, and very easy for them to just go take a job as part of Dr. Horton's construction company, or what, whatever it is. I think we're worse off for that. And I also think that a lot of people who could enjoy a, a better quality of job, of employment opportunity, don't have those options available to them because of the way we've chosen to go about building financing, let alone have a, you know, a home they can afford. So I think it's like it's it's these things go together, is what I'm saying.
0: Yeah. And I, I think that like in general as somebody who is an advocate of both building housing and historic preservation, I, I think that it may be important for the preservationist movement to kind of step back and rethink what it is we're trying to do, because we have kind of a system that is not formatted to encourage people to be good stewards of old buildings. And you know, so many buildings get neglected for decades, nobody really thinks about it. And then when uh, somebody wants to build an apartment and demolish the old building, suddenly everybody's up in arms and it's a historic building. I, I see that happen a lot and I understand why it happens, but I think that, you know, as a as somebody who would be a preservationist, it's it's important to care about these buildings long before demolition is part of the conversation and and I think part of that is owners being responsible for being good stewards of these buildings. You know, I own a house built in 1890 and I kind of feel like I'm I'm one of many people who is in charge of taking care of this building and there will be more hopefully ahead of me for as long as this building stands. You know, there's also this thing about these five over one or you know, lifestyle apartment complexes that kind of leave a bad taste in people's mouths when a historic building is torn down. And I, I kind of understand that perspective. I shared this article with a colleague and they sent me this really great quote by David Persaud. I think that's the right way to pronounce that. But the quote says, preservation was a hobby before 1950 dedicated to saving actual historic structures. For decades and even centuries, people tended to believe that a demolished building would be naturally replaced by a better building. When people started to believe increasingly after 1950 that a demolished building might well be replaced by something worse, preservation was swiftly transformed from a hobby into a mass movement. That's the essential truth about preservation. And it is not difficult to understand why we preserve if we understand that truth. I think that to me, that is a decent counter argument that calls on us as a society, I guess, to strive for building things that we can be proud of when redeveloping. And that's not to say that everything that gets built today is not something we can be proud of. And I understand that there's all these kind of market and capital forces that that make certain products the products that they are, but we we ought to be thinking about how we can consistently build buildings that are additive to the quality of places, and also be better stewards of the buildings that exist, and kind of allow the new and the old to to mix in in a way that that makes places great. Was that a mic drop moment?
2: <laughs> uh, well, Shamari is too polite to uh, interrupt and <laughs> I'm the
1: newbie on the block I'm just, I'm just following the presumed rules I think that's spot on and you know that we've been talking a lot about objective reasons for historic preservation and again I would I would emphasize that this is not an anti new construction conversation or thought there there's definitely a place for new construction. There's a place for large multifamily units. There's a place for large, what I would call standard, you know, three bedroom, two and a half bath, new construction, single family home. There's a, there's a place for that, but those places can exist in tandem with historically preserved homes, homes, commercial spaces, multifamily units. And this is something that Abby and I discussed, uh, which is a, a more subjective thought when it comes to historic preservation. And that is a sense of place. Now, I, you know, you can have a sense of place with new construction. I, I think of Greenville, South Carolina, uh, which has a lot of you know new construction built in what I would call a a relative, you know, urban dense environment and, and, and it stands out. They've done a really good job in that city, but generally speaking historically preserved homes, buildings, they give you a sense of place. Folks don't go to Boston for the weather, right? part of Boston's appeal is that those neighborhoods, that city, is well preserved part of the appeal savanna Savannah is that that city is well preserved. And if you were to blindfold someone, drop them off in the middle of those cities, take the blindfolds off, they would know exactly where they are because part of that preservation makes that place unique and it makes it attractive. And, you know, I know that it's difficult to put an objective value to that, but I think we all, understand it in our gut when we see it. And I I think that can often be overlooked because uh, it's not objective, but I think it's very important.
2: Let me try to put a bow on this. You look at a city like San Francisco, which is where Nolan is primarily talking about. And I think we can recognize that even in the North American context, it is an extreme outlier in many ways. The price dynamics there the population density, the, the, the history, it places it way outside of the experience of, of most places in North America. And I, I think when we use it as a, as a broad case study, we're doing kind of a disservice. If we look at Kansas City, or we look at my hometown of Brainerd, or really, I think any place out of a tiny number of cities and I would even you know, put Austin outside of Austin, Miami, which are very fast growing places right now, but are not anywhere like uh, San Francisco in terms of like the dynamics impacting housing prices there. It's a very different kind of thing. You look at Kansas City, I feel like we could keep every house that is there now, spend the next generation or two fixing them up, making them better, thickening them up, putting them to more productive use. While we simultaneously focused on filling in all the gaps that we have, which, which absolutely dwarf what is there now. And without adding another foot of road, another foot of pipe, uh, uh, expanding and annexing any more property, we would still have ample space to build. It's not a matter of needing to tear down old places in order to have the space to accommodate our needs it's a matter of changing the underlying development dynamics so that things can these things can happen simultaneously
0: i think that is a great way to wrap it up today why not both <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> We are full circle. (laughs) Um, So, before we end today, though, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of this show where we can share anything that we have been watching, reading, listening to, just anything that's on our mind these days. Shamari, I'm going to put you on the spot. What have you been up to?
1: A good friend of mine, his mother is a Jane, and I, I was completely and utterly unfamiliar with this religious practice. And so last time she was in town, I I had asked her to bring in some some books on Jainism so I could better understand that practice. And so I've been reading a couple books on Jainism and it's, you know, it's a practice and religion that has been around for a few thousand years. It's been eye opening to to learn about a practice that has been around for that long. That at least in my experience is um is not often discussed in the western world, and it's like i said it's been it's been really eye opening
0: i don't think I've ever heard of that
2: I have to a degree although i i don't pretend to know a whole ton, but part of it is an asceticism which I think is really amazing and and kind of beautiful but uh, Shmari, there's there's something about perfection over multiple lives lived, right? right? Like you're trying to better yourself over time.
1: That's right. It, it, it discusses kind of cycles of life and learning from those cycles of life. There's a lot of, for lack of a better term, karma concepts and and how that works. And and to I think for most people in the Western world, a belief um, which might tend to be thought of as extreme in terms of not harming anything living right like if a fly is is in your home flying around you and, and and in in your in your company, you still do not kill that fly because that that energy and karma comes back to you so again really eye opening irrelevant of of whether um, you subscribe to it or not it's a good practice in in history and you know parts of the world that I think for most uh um, is uh, Mysterious,
0: yeah. Wow, that's fascinating. Something, something for me to Google after this. <laughs> uh, Chuck, what say you?
2: I am less uh, inspiring today. Um, <laughs> I, I've, I'm really a big fan of the website Epsilon Theory, which is an in, an investing. It's a finance website about investing, but they deal with uh, narratives. And the the core argument of Epsilon Theory is that. It isn't fundamentals of businesses that are driving share prices today. It's narratives. It's the way we talk about it. And Tesla would be kind of like a a case study of this. You know, Tesla produces fewer cars today than Ford Motors did in the mid-1930s, but Tesla is valued at more than every motor company in the world added together. And so why is that? And it is because of the story we tell ourselves about Tesla, its future, its potential, it's what have you. And there's an economist named Robert Schiller that I've always found very sobering, kind of even keeled. He was one of the people who came up with the Case Schiller Index that kind of showed how housing prices had gotten way out of whack in the early 2000s. He wrote a book um, called Narrative Economics. How Stories Go Viral and Drive Major Economic Events. And I've I've had it in my kind of cart for a while, and I started listening to it at the beginning of this year, and I'm kind of embarrassed that I waited so long. It's a really good book. It it was published in October of 2019, so before the pandemic, which is actually very interesting because you can see some of the dynamics he talks about coming coming to the fore over the last year and a half. Um, but uh, narrative economics, I have found it to be a really good way to think about just the forces that shape us today.
0: Hmm, that's really fascinating. So <laughs> I don't do this this often, but I binge watched, I'm not proud of it, but I binge watched a series uh, this week called Dope Sick. I don't know if you guys have heard this before. It's a series that is on Hulu and it has Michael Keaton in it, who I really like. And it's a dramatization of the basically how oxycotton came to market and created the narcotic, kind of all the issues that we've been experiencing with narcotics in our country since the 1990s. And it tells the story from the perspective of a coal mining community, Um, It tells it from the perspective of a doctor who's prescribing Oxycontin and, you know, why they felt that it was safe to prescribe to many of their patients. It tells the perspective of salespeople who work for Purdue Pharma and, you know, why they feel justified in what they're doing. And then it also tells the perspective from the Sackler family's point of view, who were the owners, at least I think they were the owners of Purdue Pharma. I'm not sure they are anymore. So this series, it was kind of mind-blowing, and it's a series that will make you mad uh, when you watch it, but it was recommended to me by a coworker of mine who's actually from Beijing, China, Uh, and we had a really good conversation after I finished it because she wanted me to finish it before we talked about it, and she and I are always talking about like world history and how things, you know, basically just how the world has changed over time uh, both from the America and Chinese perspective, and we had this really interesting conversation about how the United States—you know—the the story, the narrative behind the United States is that people came here and they were rejecting kings and queens, and uh, they wanted liberty and they wanted to establish their own form of government. Um, however, today we have these families that are basically treated like royalty. And it's very difficult to really get past the influence that they have. Thankfully, you know, in this particular instance, the Sackler family has gotten a lot of bad press and have started to become accountable to that. But that's not really the the regular <laughs> way things happen. And so we had a really interesting conversation about kind of Uh, How things have have switched, and we may not have kings and queens, but you know, sometimes you wonder if there's a difference.
2: You generally do very good, like binge show recommendations. So I have you to thank for like forcing me to watch uh, Breaking Bad or (laughs) enticing me to watch it, which I I I resisted for a long time, and then I had to I watch it, and I'm like, yeah, that was that was fantastic. So.
0: I'm so glad you watched Breaking Bad. I've probably <laughs> watched it like three or four times all the way through. Um, so yeah I, I watched that. I think I watched it all the way through again last year, which is when mm. I recommended it to you and I know yeah I think you said Joe Minkozy had also recommended it, so yeah, I'm glad yeah. you finally got around yeah. to it.
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> Abby, is that a documentary as different episodes as a show or is it a or is it a movie?
0: it's a limited series. So I think it's like eight one hour episodes, you know, it has actors and everything to tell this story. So it's not necessarily in a sense, it's kind of a documentary because it's, you know, it's going off all of the facts um, of the cases that have gone to court and everything, but it's a dramatization of that. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. I definitely have to check that out.
0: Yeah. It's a good one. Thank you guys. Thank you both for joining me uh, today for another episode of UpZoned. Uh, Shamari, I'm so glad that you were able to get on today and hopefully you won't be a stranger. You can come, come on in the future.
1: Of course. Really appreciate the opportunity. This was fun. Awesome.
2: Thanks. Yeah, it's, it's great, to, great to add your voice to the conversation. It's, uh, Abby and I enjoy chatting with each other, but it's always fun when we can get a, a third uh, intelligent, thoughtful person involved. So thanks so much.
0: Yeah, is part of my uh we have like a local debate group where we talk about all kinds of issues via text.
1: That's right. We definitely have a crew.
0: <laughs> yeah, we've got our we've got our crew.
1: That's right. Cool. Perfect.
0: All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening to another episode of UpZoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, all. Let
1: me show you what I'm about to do.
2: Get down.